This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to another edition of The Minefield. Waleed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host and together... We are Batman and Robin. No, together we... Enough Batman references for that. Stop it. Um, together we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. And when you hear that sentence, you probably don't think of what we're about to discuss today. But I think it nonetheless does fit within that category. Scott. Oh, very much. It's very serious, actually. It's very serious. Yeah. And in fact, this is a topic, if any topic deserves a place in the top 10 topics to discuss. Oh, in the history of moral philosophy. This has got, absolutely, this has got to be it. It's it's not just that this is particularly pertinent within the history of moral philosophy. This, I think, is becoming a topic that is of increasing relevance because of the relative unthinkiness that surrounds it. Mm. We're talking about laughter. Mm. Which, you know, I mean, one of the many things that I like about this little show that we do is that we can be talking about something really, really serious and then we end up finding something kind of preposterously funny in the middle of it or yeah. we talk about something completely unserious and we make it dark yeah <laughs> i mean i i like that i think i think part of the virtuosity of having good conversations mm. is being able to move in and out of comedy and tragedy if i can put it in those kind of dark ways because one folds into the other there's something about the ridiculousness of the seriousness of what one is doing, that as soon as you stop and think about it, it becomes overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly funny. I mean, there's mm. nothing funnier, for instance. Uh, I don't, okay, this is a family-friendly program, but there's nothing funnier than having sex. But then as soon as you realize the ridiculousness of it, everything about it, we, we, we did a show recently about, about loyalty Sporting, to your yes. sport clubs. And it's, 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 the whole thing is completely frivolous and it's only important, it's only serious if you invest a tremendous amount of seriousness into something that is otherwise yes, entirely confected. Which is artificial. But the reverse is also true, right? Yes. So things that are ridiculous become very, very serious. Absolutely right. I think probably because of what they smuggle in hmm. under the cover of the laughter, right? So if, you, if you're... This is why you love Seinfeld. It is. It might actually be. You might be. I haven't thought about it in this way, but that might be right. I'll bet I can guess what your favourite Seinfeld episode is. I don't even know the answer to that oh, question really? myself, but maybe you should tell me. The episode... I mean, there... Sorry, I mean, the the one with the answering machine where... Believe it or not, George. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's just... But the one that stays with me most vividly, I can't believe it does, and I feel embarrassed yeah. every time I think about it. Yeah. It's Jerry and his girlfriend making out during Schindler's List. Yeah, and then getting accused, yes. Yeah. Yeah, that is a very funny episode. It is a very, very funny, but it's one that's impossible to find funny. And that pre for precisely that reason. Yeah. It's... What, well, it's too dark? It's, it, it's too dark, and ah. for precisely that reason, it's just way it's, too funny. But it's extremely funny. Yes, it is. Yeah. I also like the one where George ends up with his pants off lying on the floor, and Jerry comes in and says... And you want to be my latex salesman. <laughs> I feel like that episode is the perfect distillation of farce. Don't you? Yes. Um, all right. What do you want to say about laughing? Well, 
I said that I made the ridiculous claim that it's one of the sort of top 10 topics in the history of moral philosophy. Mm -hmm. Maybe a slight exaggeration, but not much, because concern over what laughter represents is, in fact, as old as philosophy itself. Mm -hmm. You find this moment in one of Plato's dialogues where Plato is registering a degree of concern over what laughter represents when laughter is directed against say, an elite or someone who has been given or has taken upon themselves the high responsibility of thinking about more than just the world of the everyday. So he uses the example of a Thracian girl who begins giggling upon seeing the pre-Socratic philosopher Thales. While he's gazing up at the sky, he falls into a well, and she finds that preposterously, ridiculously funny. And then for Plato, that then becomes the thin end of the wedge that can lead to what Nietzsche would end up referring to as the laughter of the herd. In other words, the people who just live in the undifferentiated world of the everyday, the scorn, the contempt from below that they direct towards those mm. elites, those who are quote-unquote above, as a way of kind of behaving disdainfully towards things that really are of great importance, as opposed to allowing the example of those who do give themselves more consistently to thinking about what dwells beyond illusion and beyond the flux of time, uh, rather than giving them a kind of the status of moral exemplars or intellectual exemplars. They become people who are preposterous figures who have their heads in the clouds and therefore uh, are disconnected from mm. the earth. So for a very long time within the history of philosophy, you find laughter being the subject of a degree of concern, precisely because laughter is meant to register a form of disdain. Laughter is a way that you find people who ought to garner a degree of respect ridiculous. So it's, for, it's the weapon of the weaponless. It is the it's, weapon. Well, it's disarming, right? That's, yeah. that's the point, isn't it? Yes, but it's from below. What yes. we refer to these days is kind of punching up. Yes. yes, it's the weapon of the weaponless. It's a form of unmasking the pretenses yes. of others. And, and, and therefore, done well, it's a form of truth-telling. It can be, Yes. Done badly, it's something else. Yes, it but is. But done well, it's... Are we... I'm just... I know you were in the middle of something, yep. so I want you to get back to it. that. No, please. But are we treading over ground we did with satire? I, I certainly hope so, but not necessarily. I mean, I, as you know, I have grave concerns about satire, yeah. satire, precisely because satire tends to inhabit way too fully a kind of communicative imbalance between persons. And you, you, you yes, can say but that's why it works when the communicative imba imbalance exists alongside a massive power imbalance. Yes, right? that's exactly right. But that would mean then that the purpose of satire ought to be to create the conditions of possibility within which one group who is ordinarily contemptuous towards another can in fact hear one another. Mm. But what satire in fact does as forms, as many forms of political comedy, what they do is they seem to gather people together in a state of collective mockery, direct that mockery towards a particular object. And if that object, for whatever reason, objects or tries to talk back, then the object of the mockery is accused of not getting the joke, yep. not understanding the difference between political speech versus comedic speech, Having a glass jaw. Having a glass jaw, not being able to take criticism. So my, my, my concern about satire, as with almost all forms of contemptuous speech, is that it doesn't create the conditions of possibility of listening, but in fact shuts down the possibility mm. of responsiveness. 
And I mean, that is something, you know, it runs from Plato through Aristotle. It picks up again with, I mean, Seneca, Aquinas, Hobbes picks it up, even Nietzsche. Although for, for Nietzsche, there is a kind of lovely derisiveness of those who have reached the, who have reached the summit of perfection, who had, the way that they look down laughingly mm. at those who have been left behind or those who have left themselves in the condition of the herd. You also find, though, sometimes laughter, you know, just sort of picking up Nietzsche there. You also find laughter if you think about what Thoreau did when he left the conditions of the town of Concord, people who had confined themselves to positions of slavishness to an economy that they themselves chose and then indentured themselves to. You know, Thoreau describes himself as going out to the woods and bragging as lustily as a canticleer early in the morning, if only to get people to come out after him. Uh, and so you, you do find that sometimes there is a kind of uproariousness, there is a kind of joy that goes along with these forms of laughter that isn't meant to heap disdain on those who aren't quite in the same position, but is meant to invite them to see something else, to come and sort of taste of the same thing that this philosopher, this figure, this moral exemplar. So that's, that, that's one interpretation, if you like, of laughter within the history of philosophy. It's a form of derision, either from above to below or from below to above. I'd even say that for the most part, up until the 19th century, that's the dominant understanding of what laughter is. And it's why laughter is a form of danger to the political life. Plato certainly thought so. But in the 19th century, there is a different idea of laughter. And I think this is the one, because you're an absurdist, or absurdity appeals to you yes. on all sorts of levels. Yeah. There was the absurdist interpretation, conception of laughter. This is what you have, say, with Kant. I mean, Kant was very perceptive, precisely because he tended to taxonomize everything. He was able to see <laughs> this particular uh, option. Schopenhauer uh, certainly did, Kierkegaard for sure. Uh, uh, laughter is what erupts, what emerges when an expectation, an ardent expectation is suddenly interrupted. Mm -hmm. And you can feel it, can't you? When someone's telling a joke and you reach that moment in the joke where I see where this is going, mm -hmm. nothing is funny after that. Yeah, that's right, because it's predictable. It's predictable. Or is, slapstick is a very good example of that, isn't it? Someone walking along. Was it Rowan Atkinson who said this was the most successful thing he'd ever done? It was something like this. On that, Was it not the 9 o'clock news or whatever the show is? It's just a man walking along the street, notices the camera, smiles at it, and then runs into a pole. Mm. And it's hilarious because the continuity is disrupted. The expectation is set. Unless, of course, you're dialed into the particular you know, genre that you're watching and you are expecting that. But mm. if you are expecting that, then it's not funny. Uh, Henri Bergson, who wrote a whole book on laughter, he had this other, I'm not sure what I think about this. But he said that we find animals funny, but only when animals exhibit forms of behavior that we usually associate with human beings. Yeah. So an animal tripping over is yes. funny. Not because we don't expect animals to trip over. We don't. I, I disagree. I, don't, yeah, probably. I think we don't dis expect it. But because we see that and we think that would be something that a really, really clumsy human being would do. I'm not sure about that, but it is something about the realm of expectations. I expect this to happen, which does, of course, mean that the incongruity explanation of laughter is really closely related to the notion of absurdity. Yeah. And it just means that incongruity can go deeply. So... For instance, incongruity could be, the incongruity explanation of laughter could be, there's a fairly well-ordered world. I expected this piece to drop where it belongs, mm -hmm. and it didn't. In most other circumstances, everything would function normally. Yep. Absurdity is saying something very, very different. Um, I don't often bring up Yiddish 
folktales <laughs> on this show. Mostly off air. Mostly off air. Ayal <laughs> uh, Peretz, uh, it's always, because from my time as an undergraduate, I was fascinated by the book of Job. There's a Yiddish folktale that is meant to be a kind of riff on the book of Job. It's about a ridiculous young character named Bonsi Shiveg, uh, which is Bonsi the Silent. And Bonsi goes through his entire life as a miserable, contemptuous, hideously abused, mistreated person. And yet, through his entire life, he remains silent. He has a neglectful mother who feeds him burnt, terrible food, and yet he remains silent. As a, he gets adopted by a father who ends up mistreating him horribly and sends him to work in a horrible factory, and yet Bonsky is silent. Uh, so it's this incredible litany of misfortune and abuse and maltreatment until the moment that Bonsi reaches heaven. And there he is ushered into a kind of celestial courtroom. There's the prosecutor who is meant to find fault with Bonsi's life, and there is the defender who is meant to speak of all of his great virtues. And one by one by one, the defender lists Bonsi endured this and yet was silent. It goes through this kind of ridiculous, it's, it's funny because the prosecutor the whole time is telling him, hurry up, just stick with the facts, don't embellish, don't. And then it reaches the moment, of course, when the prosecutor is supposed to say, is supposed to make his case for why this is all on the surface, but really he was just a miserable, you know, kind of hypocritical, resentful. In his heart, he was shaking his fist at heaven. And the prosecutor, who uh, is kind of representing a kind of sort of diabolical figure, uh, he says, throughout his life of misfortune, Bonsi was silent. In the world of death and illusion, he was dignified and silent. And therefore, in this world of truth, I too will remain silent. So the judge then steps down, embraces Bonsi, and says, look at this world. Everything is yours. Name your price. Ask for your gift to make up for your life of hardship and destitution. Anything is yours. And Bonsi blinks and says, really? Yes, anything is yours. I can ask for anything. Anything is yours. And he says, you know, every day I would like to wake up to warm bread and butter. Mm. And the last line in the story is, and at that point, the judge and the angels hugged their head in shame and the prosecutor laughed. Now, what's lovely about that is there's so many directions you can take that off from. Is that saying that only the only saint who can exist in a world like this is fundamentally an idiot. That what you thought was sanctity mm. is just someone who has such baselessly low expectations that it's not sanctity at all. Yeah. It's just, you know. Uh, or, or could it be that what the world in fact does is it pummels hopes and dreams into the ground to the point that the only form in which sanctity can in fact take is this kind of desperate, slight hand forward reaching for just that which is simply in front of it. Mm -hmm. So that is, a, I think, this mo wonderful moment of absurdity where what the laughter does is it can actually plumb the nature of the moral reality that's being evoked here all the way down. To my mind, you have these two great competing visions. They aren't the only ones, but laughter as incongruity, laughter as absurdity, laughter as a response to the not quite workingness of things, that things mm. don't quite work the way that they would in a normally ordered, morally ordered universe. 
versus laughter as derision. I think there are other no, options. There are, there are other options. There are other options. La laughter as therapy. Laughter as coping. Yes, but these aren't... But, but these would come from a particular... Laughter as therapy, for instance, it still needs to come from someplace. There needs to be the causal dimension behind it. You can't will yourself to laugh and for that laughter to feel but good. You, but we're familiar with that concept of... I mean, that cliche, right? That if you didn't laugh, you would cry, right? It, it's, it's, a, it's a channeling of pain or a channeling of emotion or whatever into something that I actually think in some ways embodies a great wisdom because what the person who is able to laugh as a result of pain is doing is in a sense removing the, the ego from things. But it's almost like they're viewing it from an elevated mm. position. They're, they're able to step outside the subjectivities of their experience and see something objective that in a relatively dispassionate way takes on comedy. Mm. Right? I think there's something quite, I don't know, morally impressive about that. Mm. Now, maybe that's overwrought because the person who laughs in the one instance can flee to anger and destruction in the next and then, of course, what do you say about that? But I think... But, that, I mean, that would also be the case if the laughter, for instance, is what is expected of the person. In other words, it becomes a socially performative act. You laugh because it would be inappropriate, socially speaking, in the context in which you're in to say or to respond in a way that you really feel. So their, their laughter would then become, would become a form of social conformism. Well, but even then I don't know that I have a problem with it because if, I mean, that would depend on all of the details of this hypothetical scenario that we're constructing. Mm. But if that's because there is a, a culture that has been built around that kind of response to these sorts of things, then I would say that's a culture that's built on a particular virtue, then mm. great. I think conforming with that would be... A, a fine thing to do but you know i the more we unpack this the more i wonder whether or not talking about laughter is a very coherent thing to do because what you're actually talking about is human response and that human response has the same skin but mm. actually they're very very different sorts of, course. of responses that's right some laughter is a way of engaging with something that's actually quite serious other laughter is a way of escaping that mm, i think that's right and here I, i'm minded of all kinds of warnings that you get you know, in moral codes and, and throughout moral philosophy of too much laughter mm. because one who spends their whole life laughing ends up a trivial person. Right? That, they, that They become incapable of gravity mm. and registering and engaging with gravity as gravity. It but is... laughter as a response to gravity may be a different thing. I think that's right. But see, here I think I'm with you entirely about a world with too much laughter. And while I'm not a huge fan, and I don't even like necessarily what he was doing with this, I, I do find myself often haunted by T.S. Eliot's remark that a world without blasphemy would be a highly impoverished world, which is to say a world that has no places where familiarity and laughter and mockery are refused entry, a world with no barriers mm. where any emotion, any familiarity can simply ease onto it without the notion of sanctity or hesitation, without this interval of, can I really do this? 
a world like that would be an impoverished world indeed. I think here, though, yeah, I, I don't know We're how sure far I quite I agree to, with that. I don't know if I agree with it either, but I think what, what I would probably, just to move away from T.S. Eliot and maybe towards someone like Jane Kutzia, I think there are some things which remain rightly obscene. In other yep. words, off the stage, mm. away from where familiarity can tread. There is one other form of laughter, though. And I really like what, what, what you were making of that, Willie. And I, uh, I think you're right. There's no, there's no taxonomy of laughter that I think can do it justice. It is, I think, a dangerous affect or expression. Uh, it is something that I think has rightly caused concern. It's probably something that hasn't been treated with enough seriousness. But there's another form of laughter, though, that I'll confess has long fascinated me. And that is, so imagine a fight with someone very, very dear to you. Could be a close friend. Could be a lifelong companion. It could be a spouse. And there's something about your performance of ongoing pissed-offedness that is really, really important to your desire to register the extent of your, of your frustration with this person. Mm-hmm. You really want to stay mad. But then something nonverbal that stems from your familiarity with one another, that stems from a sense of, for want of a better term, almost a kind of common humanity. Mm. Something just emerges. Some snot comes out of their nose. Yep. Yep. All the pretense is gone. Yep. And it's the laughter which brings you into a place where you can register something unspeakably deep. Mm. The... The laughter itself is almost apophatic in the sense that it's beyond description. It registers the full metaphysical weight of the other person. The thing I think about often is in George Orwell's reflections on the Spanish War, him giving a reason why he couldn't shoot a soldier who was running away, holding his rifle and desperately clutching his pants, which were falling down in the other hand. He couldn't, he couldn't shoot. He said... I came to this war to kill fascists. Someone who's trying to hold his pants up (laughs) is is just a fellow human being. Yeah. I I know, obviously, I work with a lot of comedians and I know a lot of comedians. And one comedian I know in particular is a huge and devoted fan of toilet humor, like really loves it. And, but it's not, it's not like that's the only moral, uh, sorry, comedic register they have, but they love it in a committed way. Like, no, this is a really great form of comedy. And I was like, why do you love it so much? And the point that he made is it's, it's the most fundamentally human mm. thing. It is focusing on the one thing that we all have in common. There is no status at the moment of anything in that lives in that world. And so there's not only a common bond, but just this equalizing effect. Mm. Uh, the emperor has no clothes at that, at that point. This is, this is why, incidentally, that Martha Nussbaum, a friend of this show, mm. wonderful philosopher, wrote an astonishing essay on her experience of insisting on being awake and viewing through the screen her own colonoscopy. Oh, wow. She, she said this was, this was one of the most philosophically profound moments of her life. And she decided at that moment the decision to go under anesthetic in order to shield oneself from the reality of that which lay inside us all yeah. was a morally irresponsible act. The DVD is available at uh, <laughs> ABC stores. This is The Minefield. You can listen to the show anytime on RN, as you might be doing right now. You can catch the podcast anytime on the ABC Listen app. But you can also follow The Minefield as a podcast wherever you do such things. And then every week we should just pop into your feed and you should be able to listen to us.
All right, Scott, we have a very patient guest we who's do. been, Speaking well, out wanting to be a partner, has been humouring us, I think. Through Speaking of friends of, of this show, Michelle Bullos-Walker is Associate Professor in the School of Historical and Philosophical Inquiry at the University of Queensland. She joins me and Waleed in studio, which itself is a cause of tremendous delight. Thank you so much, Michelle, for joining us. Lovely to be here. There's a name that we haven't mentioned that you've been working on. And in fact, the impetus for this conversation comes from a little thing that you've written on Hannah Arendt and laughter. And it's funny, you, you read accounts of Arendt and some of the ways that she describes, say, aunts or almost surrogate grandmothers in her life reflects many of the ways that other people and certainly students around her experienced her as being a, a disarmingly jovial person, despite her insistence on certain extremely serious practices and certain hideously significant crimes of the last century. What is it about laughter in Arendt's work that kind of captured you, that got your interest? I think really what happened was I was, I was looking at what she says in the, the life of the mind, in thinking. And in that sense, to come back to the earlier part of your discussion, you were focusing on the question of ridicule and derision, of course. Those and, and if you go back to Greek, particularly to Plato's dialogues, if you go back to Greek philosophy and literature, derision and ridicule is a huge part of, of what laughter is. And, you know, in fact, if you look at something like the symposium, a wonderful dialogue like the symposium, ridicule or, or, or better still, the threat of ridicule is what motivates almost all of that dialogue. But that's because of the nature of honour, that honour is almost an objective property that can be boosted in public, but it can also be taken away by other people because it, it has a, the form of kind of public reputation. Yeah, and I mean, Arendt doesn't say this, but there's something slightly, well, I would argue masculine about that particular fear of ridicule of in that context. Now, interestingly, it'll take a little bit further to get to our end in a minute, but interestingly, if you look at the dialogue there, well, if you look at two dialogues, you, you started the session today, Scott, with um, a reference to the Theotetus and to Socrates speaking to Theodorus at that stage, recounting the, the situation of the Thracian servant girl, the, the, the Thracian maid, as she's often translated. Now, there, to my mind, if you look at the dialogues, there are two instances, I mean, for most of the time, yes, laughter is ridicule or the threat of ridicule and for all of the reasons that you've mentioned. But there are two instances that I find really interesting and this is where Arendt comes in and that is Diotima's laughter in the, in the symposium and, and the Thracian girl's laughter in the Theotetus are actually not this, this kind of laughter that comes from ridicule or the threat of ridicule. And, I mean, I can say a little bit more perhaps later about what diatema's, um, diotema's laughter is, but certainly what Arendt picks up on, because she certainly goes to the question of this laughter between the Thracian servant girl and, and um, the mathematician in that sense, and, uh, sorry, for Thales. And what she says in The Life of the Mind I think is is really helpful, and that is, that what's going on here is there's a fear of ridicule and laughter is mostly always read as ridicule. But what's actually going on is that the laughter is much more good-natured than, than is supposed. 
And, and yet, because it's coming from a woman, because it's coming from a young woman, because it's coming from a young woman of very particular social kind of status, it seems to be inappropriate in that way. So what Arendt goes on to say in um, the intramural warfare, you know, the, the, the section in the, the Life of the Mind, is to say something along the lines of what's going on here is actually a back and forth between thinking on the one hand and on the other hand, common sense. Hmm. And common sense, the laughter of common sense is not ridicule. And so I think it's interesting, really, that you find these instances where the laughter that comes from the women in Plato's dialogues is actually not not that kind of threatening, ridiculing laughter, but something else. So that's the starting point for, I guess, my interest in Arendt was just what she was doing with that play between thinking and common sense. And, and then she goes on to say, well, you know... Um, in a sense, common sense is just, it's a reminder because, you know, the, the philosopher's life is actually ridiculous, you know, open, it's theoretically open to ridicule by being ridiculous. Why is it ridiculous? Because the philosopher to do the philosopher's work has to withdraw from the mm. world. So any withdrawal from the world is a kind of, you know, a crazy position from the position of common sense. So Arendt is giving credence to common sense here but she's pointing out that on the one hand, it, it's not, it's not, you know, the kind of negative thing that 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 Plato's making it out to be in so many other contexts, or or at least as we understand it. But in fact, it's a kind of gentle reminder, like, you know, do your stuff, do your thinking, do your speculative stuff, but remember that there's a world that we're doing this in. And then she goes a little further and she says something along the lines of, well, you know what? The philosopher himself, and she does refer mm. to him as a him, the philosopher himself actually has internalised that voice. So it's actually not this external threat of derision that's coming. Like the philosopher is paranoid about that and I think, you know, the philosopher remains paranoid about that to be quite honest. But that's actually not what's going on. What's really going on is that um, the philosopher has internalised that voice and understands because at a certain level... Even philosophers are human and worldly. <laughs> At a certain level. At a certain level and, you know, even philosophers. And, and that is just a reminder that we've, we internalise the sense in which there are limits to this, this process of withdrawal. Common sense has to play. So there's a play between common sense and um, thinking or speculative thought that is not combative in mm. that way. Now... So that's kind of interesting for a whole range of reasons, partly because I have just picked out these two instances, Diotima being the other instance, um, where you've got this very different process of laughter occurring. Diotima's, I think, is even more interesting. But just in coming back to Hannah Arendt's work there, what's going on here is that she, you know, if we go backwards with her work, if we go back to the, the very famous book on Eichmann in Jerusalem, Arendt gets into huge problems with that book that we know historically, we know that story, but she gets into huge problems with the way she describes her uh, response in basically reading the 3,600 pages of the, the testimony for Eichmann. And her response is to say, you know what, I read every single page. I read 3,600 pages. And you know what my response was? I laughed. 
I laughed out loud. Now, this is super interesting for a range of reasons. And basically, I'm saying that what happens in the Eichmann book ends up in informing what happens later on in the, the life of the mind. But just to stay with the Eichmann book for a minute, what she's saying there is, um, you know, that that what response can you have to this? So the the question of laughter in the Eichmann case and the way she describes it herself, both outside of that book and at times within that book, is that she's actually decoupled laughter and humour. And now I think this is actually a huge mm. point. Mm. Every time you pick up a, a philosophical treatise on, on laughter, it, it confuses, fuses and confuses the terms humour and true. laughter. And actually I'm, I'm just more personally interested in, in a particular exploration of laughter that's not necessarily coupled, in fact that isn't coupled to humour. Because I think we can understand a great deal about that coupling, humour and humour and laughter, uh, although of course there's plenty to say. But what, what's ha- happening here is the laughter that emanates and, and that is a response to the horrific situation of Eichmann and everything that surrounds it is what others have referred to as, say, a spontaneous laughter. It's a spontaneous laughter, while it, you know, to come back to what you were saying too before about absurdity, in some senses we can understand it as a response to absurdity. In this case, it's a response to you know, unspeakable um, crime and horror and terror. And Arendt's response is is laughter and, and she says, she even goes further, she pushes the, the envelope completely saying, you know, I laughed, I laughed out loud at this and, you know, if I knew for sure that I had 10 minutes left to live in this earth, on this earth, I would still laugh. And, of course, this really, really sickens and annoys people um, enormously but I think there's another way into understanding what that spontaneous laughter is. And it's a laughter that gives you, firstly, I think it's a laughter that permits time, in a sense, to pause. It's a pause. It's that what on earth is this thing that I'm facing? What's this experience that I'm having? You mean as in though laughter is like the thinking music of <laughs> the, the respondent or how, how does it create that pause? Yeah. Actually, that's a, that's a good question, Walid. I In fact, I don't think it's the thinking music. I think it's the pause in thinking music. You know, it's not just that laughter gives you that chance to think again. What it does first is it it ensures or enforces a period of a kind of non-thinking. And it's an interval, it's a space wherein you just need time to to react, to respond in a certain sense. It's a temporary bypassing of rationality and rational response. Mm. Not a denial of it, but it's a it's a suspension. So of it's the, a response without a response yeah. that then permits you to develop a response yeah. over time. But that, I think so. But that presumes, though, it you don't laugh in the face of the ineffable. You don't laugh in the face of the abyss. You laugh in the face of something that maybe you thought was graver or bigger or more threatening or more dangerous than it was. But the very presence of laughter in the face of Eichmann means there is something here that is comprehensible. The deeds might have been astonishing, grotesque, but they don't leave one speechless. What if they're incomprehensible and that's what you're laughing at? Yes. But, but that wasn't, as I read Eichmann, that's not the basis of her. It's that it's his pettiness 
Banality. It's his banality. In other words, he isn't a monster. But remember, remember that prior to Arendt, you're dealing with Kant's view here, yes, in a sense, right. of the um, absolute evil, okay, the, the reality of an absolute evil. Arendt gets to this amazing place of the banality of evil, but how does she get there? And the argument that, that can be made is she gets there through laughter. Yes, that's right. And so there's a suspension of what Kant's done and she goes in through laughter in that sense. And, and laughter has given her this... Because, again, I think we're just so imbued in the West of, of equating and confusing laughter and, and humour or laughter and what's funny. It's not that process. Mm. It's a spontaneous thing. Maybe another way of putting this is something quite, quite different. Uh, do you know the work of Teresa Brennan, The Transmission mm. of Effect? Mm. Fabulous work and very, you know, not, not very much engaged with work but very interesting. One of the things that she says about laughter in that book that always stayed with me was that laughter is a response to negative affect. So, you know, if you project, if you're in a situation where someone's projecting anger, hostility, much worse in a mm. sense, one of the ways that you could just literally closed down in that sense is laughter. And, I, you know, I think we would possibly refer to that as nervous mm, laughter, mm. I think, and we all understand well, that. Well, it could also be derisive. I mean, laughter in that context could be a lot of things. It could be a lot me. of things. But I, I actually like the notion that affect can actually be blocked by this thing that's not a thing. Laughter mm. is not yet a thing in a sense, but it's a, it's a bit of, it can be a defence. Mm. And I think that's what's going on with RN. It's communicative, though. Right? It can be communicative. I mean, I'm talking about the scenario where someone is yelling at you or whatever and your mm. response is to laugh. That, that's, that can't help but be communicative. In that. It's different to Arendt's situation yeah. where she's reading something in private yeah. and that's her yeah. response to it. Of the kind of effect that Brennan's talking about can be very silent, of course. It's not necessarily anything that someone's yelling or screaming at you, but, but the, the intent is there, you know, the, the negative intent is there. And... You know, her argument is just simply that, that laughter can be a way of, of drawing that down. And I only mention that because I think that's what people haven't thought of or considered in, in Arendt's response, is that you've got this situation where the, her laughter to the Eichmann papers, this is not trivial, it's not mm. nothing, it's, it's not, um, she's not reducing it, she's not excusing it or doing any of these things, she's trying to cope with mm. it. Mm. But, but I wonder if it's a version of what I was trying to describe before, seeing it at a remove. So that if you... What she's kind of doing is taking the heat out of it, whether that's deliberate or not. That's what's happening in that moment. I wonder, Walid, if that's all you can do if you have the task that she has. You know, yeah, you're, that, you're, that might be right. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure. I'm just thinking this through too. You're the one reporting on this in a very public way you're a representative, mm. how do you get the space to actually decide? Like, the, the thing is, she jumps a long way. By the time she gets to the banality of evil, that's a, that's a really big move. That's mm. one of the big moves in the 20th century. That's right. Mm. And to do that, you know, I think laughter has enabled that process. Mm. Yeah. Do you know what laughter is in that instance as well? Uh, it's a, just, just my observation. I don't know if she would have seen it this way. But there's also something patient about it. 
It, it's, I fully agree. It's not rushing to... It's a pause. Any, yeah, I suppose I'm just articulating what you've already said. And, all right, I'll stop doing well, that. No. Um, it's... <laughs> if you've just joined us, you are listening to The Excellent. Minefields. Well, Lee Daly is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Michelle Willis-Walker is our guest. She's excellent, in spite of her attempts to pass that off onto others. Um, Associate Professor in the School of Historical and Philosophical Inquiry at the University of Queensland. I want to get to common sense because we, we sort of skipped over that, but is there something you want to pick Just up? Just very, very briefly, I want to get to common sense too. I think that's so interesting here. Uh, Arendt at one point referred to Eichmann as the man in the box. And it is interesting that the Eichmann trial really was the first global media event of the 20th century. It was promoted as a media event. I'm not saying that the trial was a show trial. I don't believe it was. But it did have a, that global media character to it. And to my mind, there is no doubt that Arendt was living under a particular weight of expectation. She had been contracted by the New Yorker magazine. It was very, very clear that there was something that North American readers wanted. And it would have been very, very easy, I think, for her to give North American, not to say nothing of European readers, what they wanted, which was the reportage version of Kant's radical evil. It would have been the easiest thing in the world to cast the man in the box as a monster about whom nothing more can be said apart from condemnation. And to my mind, what's fascinating is to hear counterpose Arendt's laugh in the face of the preposterousness, the superficiality, the banality, the automation of this man about which, in many respects, he was guilty of monstrous things. But to call him a monster is what, it's to give him too much dignity, in, in, in some, or give his deeds too much dignity. But to counterpose that to the phenomenon then of canned laughter, which is you can watch the comedy, and not only is the comedy doing the things that are supposed to invoke laughter, but the comedy is also, this is, we were talking the other week, Walid, about Gustave Flaubert's notion of received ideas. Mm. The comedy is not just stage the things that are supposed to evoke the laughter from you, but the comedy is also do the laughing for you. Mm. It's a completely automated exercise. It gives you everything that you want, everything that you want without the minimal effort on your part. You can watch the funny things happen and the box does the laughing for, for you. Yeah. And it seems to me that in many respects, precisely what, Arendt was trying to do there was to resist what Eichmann in Jerusalem is, is a thinking machine. It's a thinking machine. It's the opposite of either canned laughter or the opposite of what was expected of her, which was the canned outrage, mm. the, the condemnation machine in that sense. Now, that's not to say, I mean, she believed Eichmann had to be condemned and she supported his execution. So it's not that she blunted in some ways the moral condemnation. But she was astonishingly attuned, I think, to the commodification of affect through the mechanisms of mass media. Mm. And to my mind, that probably has more pertinence for us now than just about anything else. That we've Except to be pleased to know canned laughter is out of fashion. It is, although you've, you've seen that friends are getting back together for some kind of horrible reunion. Yeah, just... but that, that's nostalgia. It's not, you would never make a comedy now with canned laughter. I think it's been a really interesting shift. Yeah. Um, what was the moment that I noticed it? Probably Modern Family. Yeah. But that's sort of, it's a very different approach to 
the way sitcoms work. I, I find it weird when these shows get described as sitcoms because when I think of sitcoms, I think of Canned the studio like audience, That's even right. if it's not actually canned, it's yes. just the studio audience. But you think of it, that sort of trigger... I disagree that they're doing the laughing for you. I don't think that's what's happening. I think they're just signalling to you that there was a joke there. Mm. So if you missed it, like what you I'm saying join is, it you don't have creating... to laugh in order to feel happy. No, of course not. Uh, sure, yeah. but I, I just I'm now just nitpicking over canned okay. laughter. I, I think what that's doing is when you hear people laugh, you are more ready to laugh, right? That's all that is, isn't we, it? We can have this argument later. Oh, we show on canned laughter. Did you ever see Four Lines? I would be very interested to know what you think of it. Do you know what it is at no. all or am I talking gibberish? Yep. Okay, so Four Lions is a, um, it was a British dark comedy, um, satirical, about a terrorist group in Britain that are just hopeless. <laughs> and this was 2010, so this is only five years after the, the underground bombings, the London Tube bombings. Mm-hmm. So you, it's, it's not exactly divorced. Like it, this is in the ether at this moment. This is still an issue. I mean it's still an issue in Europe but... Well, everywhere really, but it's really an issue there. But it's a genuinely hilarious film. Mm. And I just thought of it because there is a banality of evil element to what's going on here, the, the hopelessness of these people and just how funny it is watching them take on these affectations and dream up these things and then panic when it goes wrong and end up doing something completely stupid. Um I, I want to hear what you think okay. of this film. Done. I'd genuinely be interested to know. Should we talk about common sense? Hmm. You made this comment earlier, which I might be misquoting, but my memory of it is something like um, the laughter of common sense is not derision. I wonder if that's true when we factor in something which we discussed earlier, which was satire. Because I think part of what satire is doing very often is purporting to be the laughter of common sense. It's taking that which those in power have done and is saying that it somehow violates a, a common sense. It's meant to be the laughter of the people. Against, against the pretensions of the elite, effectively. Yeah, it's almost the humorous version of the pub test. Right. So there is a. Now, I know there are shades of satire, and some are a bit more elitist than that, yeah. and some like more narrow cast in their politics, but the mechanism is still the same, isn't it? I think there's something going on here that relates... I think satire is different and I'm trying to think quickly about why I think it's different and I think it's partially because satire is absolutely, for me, connected to critique in that way. Satire is a position of critique. What I want to say about laughter, well, the, the kind of spontaneous laughter that I've been trying to suggest here... What I want to say about that is that it's actually on the road to judgment, but it's not a judgment. Hmm. And that's what's interesting, to come back to the Arendt case, that's what's interesting about that position she holds prior to the banality is that she's on the way to that judgment, but she's not there. So I think you've got laughter and I think you've got critique. And so I think you've got laughter and you've got satire. Satire, I think, fits more... I mean, maybe I'll change my mind when I think this through, but I think satire fits more accurately into a system of critique, which means it's part of that system that you're critiquing. So you view it not as belonging to a discussion about laughter or comedy? I think we can append it. Comedy is not in, in, in what I'm suggesting here, but I think we can append satire to questions of laughter. But I think laughter demonstrates... I think laughter is simply this. It's, um, 
spontaneous laughter, is a move outside of the system, satire remains within the system. We have a re- there's real tension here, though, because just going back to Plato for a moment, I mean, Plato's distinction between life in the cave versus life in the sun, a life of the masses characterized by a degree of unthinkingness and illusion versus the life by which we have been erotically drawn out towards the sun where we can see hopefully some, some things clearly, a much more cerebral, much more sort of philosophical life, obviously. But the life of the cave is the life of the everyday. I mean, it's the world, it's the world in which we live. It's the world in which we go to the toilet and it's the world in which we trip over and fall into wells. Um, can be a world of conformity and delusion and unthinkingness of merely culinary delights and no kind of greater ambitions or ends that we, that we seek. But I guess there's something about the fleeing of the cave into the life of philosophy that I find both troubling but also necessary because the alternative is just to go from one thing to the other, to the other, to the other, and never to be caught like we were talking about the other week, to be caught in this kind of cycle of fatigue and never really, really, really to have what nurtures the soul. It seems to me that one of the things that laughter can do, not when it's the laughter of, you know, you ridiculous elites giving yourself to questions that nobody else cares about. I mean, it's important that there are people who ask questions that nobody else cares about. That's important. But there is something about the laughter of the everyday, or if I can put it this way, the laughter of common humanity that isn't derisive and isn't contemptuous, but it could even be an invitation back to that which we have most fully, most thoroughly in common. And that's how I read, for instance, the Thracian girl's laughter. It's not, I mean, it's the fact that you're right. It's the fact that she's a girl laughing at an older man. That's what sort of, that's what drenches this in the prospect of shame. And that's why it was horrifying. But the laughter is an invitation to rejoin the world of the commonly human in the same way as George Orwell's giggling at the fascist with his pants falling down. That's an invitation back to the world of the commonly human. So I, I guess there's common sense and there's common sense. There's the world of the everyday as a place of relative ignorance and unthinkingness from which we make shallow judgments. And there's the world of the everyday, which is the world that we find our commonness through things that are otherwise quite ridiculous. I fully agree, Scott, and that's the fact that that's the phenomenal world. And Mm. in the worst reading of Plato's work, you know, the ascension to the domain of the sun and and all that that is, is a transcendental that moves away from the earth and it moves away from the living earth and it moves away from those of us who are attached to the earth. And to stay, and yet to stay within the phenomenal world, there's the possibility of a, a transcendental that is not perhaps vertical mm. but horizontal. Precisely. And you would very well know, for example, um, Lucy Rigray's work on the sensible transcendental, where the divinity of our existence is here, it is now, and it's on earth. And you can see all the implications there for an environmental ethic, mm. let alone anything else. But yes, that I fully agree. 
I've spoken a little today about spontaneous laughter, but allied with that or, or, you know, beside spontaneous laughter, we have shared laughter. And shared laughter is that process of literally sharing our humanity and, and having reinforced a kind of faith in our fellow human beings in that sense. And I think laughter is incredibly bonding and important in that process. It's a different form of laughter. Um, there are myriad forms of laughter, mm. but, you know, spontaneous laughter and shared laughter do important work in, in different ways. What's shared laughter? Shared laughter is, I think, where, I mean, if we just go back a little bit to spontaneous laughter, I think it's a very individual response where in certain respects you could literally be at odds with everyone. You know, you, right. you find this... You're the only one who's finding this. Yeah. You're the only one. So, uh, you know, our situation with yeah. Eichmann is a good case in point there. Many others we could think of. And then shared laughter is the situation where the situation is so dire, but to be able to share mm. that process with others is to reinforce our humanity, to reinforce our sense that things could change, to resist. I think they're both modes of resistance, but in different ways. But I would also contrast that to another form of shared laughter that I find, I mean, the, it's shared laughter that is a nonviolent expression, if you like, of mob violence effectively, mm. which is the gathering together of laughter and the common direction of that laughter towards a common object of disdain. So this is sneering laughter. This is sneering laughter, yeah. yeah. And to my mind, a great deal of modern satire and a great deal of quote-unquote quasi-political comedy mm. veers way too much into that kind of collective act of sneering in common, yeah. We're out of time, I'm afraid. Should we keep going? Just hope that they keep broadcasting. <laughs> I don't really know what to do with that. Michelle, it's been such a delight. Thank you very much for coming in. For me as well. I know that at the start you were worried that you wouldn't have anything to say, you wouldn't know what your response would be to anything. I think it turned out fine. Are you you happy with how you went here today, Michelle? (laughs) Delighted. (laughs) No, it was fantastic to have you and you're welcome to come back uh, anytime. Michelle Bullas-Walker is an Associate Professor in the School of Historical and Philosophical Inquiry at the University of Queensland. Our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield. We're done with that and we'll see you next week with something else. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.